The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Folks, welcome back to part two of Freemasonry, the worship of Lucifer Satan. This is, of course, that five-part pamphlet that I have been working through. And uh, I will say, after getting through this, man, I do have sort of a newfound respect for the symbology and the symbolism within Freemasonry. It was really incredible to go through this. Um, Reading the whole thing, it is mind-blowing stuff. They do an incredible job of creating multiple meanings for all their different symbols. You know, last episode we went through the double-headed eagle or the phoenix. Uh, We went through the triangle, the pentagram, the hexagram, the go to Mendes and Baphomet and all that cool stuff. Really kind of an introduction to what we're going to get in here to today. We're going to do some on the snake and uh, all that symbolism there. Of course, the Ouroboros is included. And there's some iterations of the Ouroboros that I had not ever seen before. Of course, this touches on the bees and the beehive symbolism. Uh, We go in depth with the square and compass here as well. And that was some mind-blowing stuff, to be honest. Just, uh, I mean, you, you see it and you know that it's got to harness some sort of interesting energy, but as many ways as they look into it and and the different meanings that it has again like claudie says right it, you you unwrap different meanings the further and further you go down in these rabbit holes and i mean spoiler alert here the uh freemason symbol is a generative symbol right like it's uh that g doesn't stand for god or uh geometry it stands for generation um And then you get some masculine and feminine energy in there, and it references the column, it references the monad, um, the duad, all these different things. We talk about the Tao symbolism a little bit, yin-yang symbolism, the phallus, right, the penis, the uh, obelisk, which is represented commonly throughout masonry. And uh, I mean, it's mind-blowing stuff, and uh, they touch on the Statue of Liberty here a little bit too. They do some really, really great stuff. I I wish that I knew who this author was. Anyone out there that finds out who the author is, please let me know. Uh, I don't know if they were trying to keep their, you know, identity a secret, but, uh, you know, because they are talking about some very interesting information here. 
But all that this author did was come at this from a Christian perspective, and they read through some of the most notable Freemasons' own books, right? Albert Pike, Morals and Dogma, uh, Manly P. Hall, Claudie. There's several different artists that we go through here. Or, I'm sorry, um, they are kind of artists in a way because they are connecting some insane dots, but authors is the uh, the term I was looking for. I gotta, I'm not going to lie to you. I am pissed off right now. I don't know if you've ever done something on accident that was so small when you look back at it, but it just enrages you. Uh, what it was for me was I was coming home. It's hotter than hell in Tucson, Arizona right now. Coming home from a nice little trip to the grocery store. You know that Walmart's always a fun place to be. There's some energy there. And, uh, you know, walking around, getting my shit spending an arm and a leg to get some things, right? You know, I like to eat good, making some chili rellenos tonight. Had some leftover carne asada meat from the tacos the previous night. Going to throw something nice together here. And, uh, you know, I get the eggs. Everything's coming in nicely. Well, let me let me take a step back. I forget the eggs at Walmart, okay? That's a little, it pisses me off a bit because it's crucial to... Uh, chili rianos, not because they have eggs like as a direct ingredient, but it's a battered chili, right? I forget my fucking eggs. I have to stop at the dollar store on the way home. First dollar store, Dollar General, who seems to carry nothing. I think that the store doesn't have anything in it anymore because whenever I go there looking for something, there's just, I mean, it's empty with what I am fucking looking for. It's insane. They have cigarettes. And, like, sometimes some shitty, like, natural light. And that's it. Eggs? No. They didn't have eggs. Uh, What was I looking for recently that wasn't in there, too? White Claws. They were out of White Claws. Imagine that. What kind of sin is that? So, down the street further, there is a Family Dollar who, shout out Family Dollar. They really are the redheaded stepchild of dollar stores, but they try hard. They don't clean up nicely at all. It's a shitty-looking store. But they do a great job. They always have everything in there. And I was also looking for shaving cream. seems like there's two cans of shaving cream in Tucson right now. And I got both of them. Okay. So, you know, taking care of business. Everything's nice. Finally find my uh, fucking eggs. And I have to get Hickman Farms. It's some cheap ass egg. Whatever. Not a big deal. It's going in batter anyway. It doesn't really make much of a difference. Walking up the stairs of the deck in my little home here. And the eggs just jump out of the basket. I don't understand what happened. You would think that I was shaking these fucking things. Eggs fall out. And every single egg broke. It wasn't like one was cushioned by another one's fall, fell on one of his little brothers or sisters. No. Every egg broke. And I was just short of calling these eggs the N-word. I mean, I was I was mad. I was um, really close to throwing racial slurs around. I don't know if you've ever gone through that, and you're fortunate that no one sees you do it, but holy shit, I was angry. Um, Slamming doors, you know, just acting like a real pig, and, uh, you know, it happens. It happens, but, you know, we got over it, and, uh, you know, man, it's a real knife fight out here. It's a horror, some may say. But uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna turn this around. We're gonna talk in about some some interesting stuff, and I like doing these episodes, man. So let's see uh, let's see what y'all think about the second version, uh, second installment, I should say. I covered one through three of this packet, and uh, we're gonna do four through five, which are a little more in depth 
Both of these parts are a little longer. So let's roll into it. They start off talking about the snake here and serpent worship in Freemasonry. Freemasonry does worship the serpent. Most other pagan groups throughout history have. This has been going on for at least 5,000 years. I mean, we remember the the uh, serpent in the Garden of Eden, which I have you know alluded to the idea that this is potentially Samael, um, not to be confused with Samuel, but Samael. And one thing I found interesting, and I actually posted this on Instagram, is that Ben Franklin wanted the national animal to not be the eagle or the phoenix. He wanted it to be the rattlesnake at one point. Um, ben Franklin, of course, a, a very notable Freemason. Some people think he's the most influential. I would totally disagree, but... Uh, one of these guys that uh, has a mixed past and um, definitely gets shouted out in positive and negative lights. But think about that. A rattlesnake is the national animal rather than the eagle. I've never seen a fucking eagle in my life. I've seen a lot of rattlesnakes. Um, I think that rattlesnakes are more throughout the country, right? Um, where do eagles even live? There, I know that there's got to be some in Arizona, but I think that they're probably so good at what they do because they're stealthy. Uh, I've seen some owls. I've seen some other birds of prey, vultures and such. Uh, but the vulture is, again, like the red-headed stepchild, the varmint version of the uh, beautiful eagle, right? So food for thought there. That's some deep shit. But uh, getting back to the snake symbolism and what it really means to Freemasonry, like they say, like Pike has said in the previous episode even, um, I was saying that Pike says that Freemasonry is identical to the ancient mysteries, right? Those esoteric religions. And when they say that the United States has Christian roots, I would definitely push back on this at this point. And I would say that it has Masonic roots or ancient mystery roots because it's so tied in, right? Um, Supposedly, uh, Washington wanted to swear in on a Masonic Bible, and didn't do that, right? I, I guess he used a Christian Bible. There is some some um, note that he might may have actually done it on a Masonic Bible. I wasn't there. I don't think you were either. But, you know, it's interesting to think about what the actual roots of this nation are. And when you look at Washington, D.C., our supposed capital of the United States, you see some Freemasonic symbolism and Luciferian symbolism, Right. More specifically, I should say, satanic symbolism. Luciferian would be the positive side of their god. Satanic would be the negative side. And they have the satanic star there in Washington, D.C. So even they, um, the Freemasons, the people that constructed this country and and mapped the layout of the way that we do things down there in D.C., um, they they wanted it to have some, some evil connotation to it. So interesting stuff to think there. The serpent entwined around the egg was a symbol common to the Indians and Egyptians and also the Druids. It referred to the creation of the universe. And this is a really cool thing to look at. It's basically a large egg with a skinny snake swirled around it. Um, I don't know if it's significant that you have four stripes of the snake. It's some sort of diamondback snake. And um, there's no rattle on the snake. But you see that this represents the creation of the universe in some sense so this would mean in a way that this egg would represent the earth or the globe and that snake would represent whatever created it okay so if the serpent is truly evil they feel 
that the serpent created the earth, or at least they pay homage to the snake in the creation of the earth. And that's significant later. When I start talking about the columns and the the two ways that Boaz and Yahin, the two pillars that we're seeing outside of Solomon's temple, are constructed in some way, or at least portrayed in some way, you see two different iterations of the snake, one with a globe and one without. And so I want you to keep that in mind, as I mentioned, the egg and the snake as a reference to the creation of the universe here. And Freemasonry, by the way, does not believe that the universe was created by the God of the Bible, right? They believe that it has something to do with the serpent. And Masons very much idolized the Druids. These are occultic priests. They practiced astrology. They offered human sacrifices. Kind of an interesting group here. Um, And to be honest, I don't know a ton about them, but they are very occultic in their practices and in their religions. Another one of these ancient mysteries that Albert Pike references. And um, William Hutchinson says this about the practices and principles of the profession of Masonry, as they refer to it. He says, our mode of teaching, the principles of our profession, masonry, is derived from the Druids, and our chief emblems originally came from Egypt. Again, William Hutchinson, he writes the book uh, Mason, the Spirit of Masonry, and this was revised by George Oliver. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, they say it right there, and this is not the only case that they say that in or refer to the Druids as being sort of a, a keystone of the Mason's work. But, you know, you have also Albert Churchwood saying that the Masons are our present Druids, okay? He wrote this in Signs and Symbols of Primordial Man. I mentioned that in the last episode as well. And this is so significant because the Druids worshiped the snake, one of many things that they did that was very, very pagan in nature. Now, I'm not against the pagans. It might sound like I am, You have to remember, I'm reading out of a packet here. These aren't my own thoughts. I do throw a few thoughts around on here, but um, it's a a constant war, it seems, since Christianity comes into the picture. It seems like there is a battle between Christianity and paganism. It seems like paganism sure seems to be winning right now. I don't know if that's because it's got its older roots or if there just is more pagans in powerful places, but you really see this, and I think that this is what pushes me towards Christianity, right? Um, The pagan leaders of this country seem to be fucking targeting Christians, right? That's what pushes me away from paganism and pushes me towards this. And I wasn't raised pagan or anything. I was barely raised Christian. I was kind of raised to be agnostic, honestly. But um, yeah, it's just an interesting battle that you see going back and forth here. The uh, Druid God, who, H-U, was typified by the reptile. And he was represented by the bards as the wonderful chief dragon. Okay, you think of a dragon, very similar to a serpent. And this is the dragon which represents the sovereign heaven. This is according to George Oliver, another Freemason. um, Did some work with McCoy Publishing, that major publishing uh, house of the Freemasons. And Satanists and Christians have the same view on the snake. Satanists and Christians have the same view of the snake. The snake represents Satan. It doesn't represent Lucifer so much. It represents Satan. And Pike goes through a few various religions who worship the snake as well. You've got the Phoenicians, represented by the god Nomu, N-O-M-U, Nef or Amunnef. 
This is a serpent god, okay? In Egypt, a sun supported by two asps, another type of snake, was the emblem of Horhat. <laughs> and I didn't make that name up, Horhat. The good genius, the serpent with the winged globe, was placed over the doors and windows of the temple as a guardian god of sorts. And again, I will break that down a little further when I talk about column symbolism and Boaz and Yahin specifically. You also have an ancient tear in India. A serpent was coiled around the trunk of a tree. Python, the uh, serpent deity, was esteemed, and the tripod at Delphi was a triple-headed serpent god of gold. Okay? Now, the portals of the Egyptian temples are decorated with the hierogram of the circle of the serpent. And then, this one, um, I'm going to skip through five because I want to go back to it. But those, I went through four there. Uh, The sixth one is all Buddhist crosses in Ireland had serpents carved upon them. Wreaths of snakes are on the columns of the ancient Hindu temple at Burwa Sangor. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. But I wanted to to end off on uh, this fifth one here. Um, This is the temple of Nakarustan in Persia. Because I've got a little more to say on this one, um, as the packet here does. And then I had some some separate things I wanted to get into when it comes to this. Now, um, the serpent is found upon the temple of Nakarustan in Persia on the triumphal arch at Pechen in China, as well as over the gates of the great temple of Shanditiva in Java, and then upon the walls of Athens, all right? Also, the Mexican hierogram was formed by the intersecting of two great serpents, which described the circle with their bodies. A bit of Ouroboros symbolism there. And I guess these snakes in the Mexican version of this oftentimes had human heads in its mouth. And that's a very significant thing to note down here as well. The head in the mouth of a snake represents initiation. Seems like a very dark way to initiate something. We're talking about a snake eating a person, and that means that they're crossing over into some elite circle. It's insight into the spiritual realm. Before one's ready for the initiation, one must prepare themselves or learn the occult information that's required, the teaching, so to speak, and to be able to look into the light without damaging their vision. So think about what that means, being able to learn about this occult information and really look into the abyss without losing your sanity. It must be some pretty wild shit that they're actually teaching at the highest levels here. I don't know. Apparently, it takes quite some time. Um, I don't know. Some say eight years. Some say uh, it, it depends with every other person. But I find that fascinating that, you know, not only is the snake eating the human, having a head in the snake's mouth represents that person being um, initiated. But, you know, we talked about that Fauci... Uh, Abyss, his mother's name was Abyss, and their family seal had a child in the snake's mouth, right? Um, We were thinking like, wow, it's kind of weird to to have that as a family crest. What that means is that serpent or that demon or that devil even is initiating that child. I would have never known that without looking into this a little bit. So just something to, uh, to notice if you ever see that, if you ever see a snake eating a man, it means that that culture or that elite uh, society within that culture is initiated, maybe not into the Freemasons, but into some form of like heads of society, right? 
But it takes wisdom to get to that level. And this is wisdom gained through the study of and, and really the knowledge of ancient mysteries. All the pagans in every era have used the serpent to worship uh, some sort of wisdom. This is a symbol of wisdom here within the serpent. Now, when you look at an extended snake or just a regular snake, that directly represents wisdom or knowledge. And then the Ouroboros, the snake eating its own tail, represents eternity. Also, the Ouroboros is a symbol of time. So time is eternal and uh, they go kind of hand in hand with the snake symbolism. And with the child and the skull within the snake, it's a deeper meaning of wisdom. It's something that I don't understand even after going through this, but it's definitely got something to do with, I think, indoctrination. Maybe we're kind of seeing that with the grooming of kids right now in schools and this whole drag show shit that's being exposed in Texas, uh, thanks to a friend of the show, haven't spoken with him in a while, Alex Stein, right? He actually went out there and he filmed these guys. And uh, I know y'all know who he is, but man, it was um, definitely kind of interesting to see that and see how in your face it was. And there's a different iteration of the Ouroboros, as I kind of alluded to earlier. It's this very, very interesting image of uh, some Latin text on the outside of a circle with an Ouroboros and a child leaning on a snake with what looks like a forest in the background. This isn't the clearest picture that I'm looking at. You can type this in online. You can actually just see uh, Ouroboros. You can type in, and then I'll tell you the text to type in here in just a moment. Um, But what it is, it's the snake encircles the two symbols of the extremes, right? We have the creation of life, which is the child, and then death, the symbol of the skull. And the child is actually leaning on the skull. So it's like birth is kind of leaning on death there. Um, I don't know if that obviously it means something like death is always at your, uh, you know, knocking on your door or what, but um, creepy image here for sure. And this is apparently something that they use quite often to symbol the Ouroboros and between them, the child and the skull are intended to symbolize the meaning of the beginning and the end here. The end is my beginning or the end is found at the beginning is about what these Latin words say at the top. And this is also kind of winking at the pagan belief in reincarnation. I don't know where I stand on reincarnation, man. I think that it's an interesting idea, and I think that it would be interesting to think that all these Freemasons uh, that do some, some good things in society, and they also do some pretty bad things, to think why they would do what they do um, if they did believe in some reincarnation, right? This almost seems like a misleading thing to me. Um, I don't know though, you know, I think that if, if, um, let's see, who was a bad Freemason that's like known to be bad? Uh, I mean, Albert Pike was a, a KKK member, right? Allegedly. And he did some pretty bad things. I'm sure he was a Confederate general. I'm sure if he was hating on someone because of the color of their skin, wouldn't he come back later as a person that was persecuted or some sort of animal that was treated really badly? I mean, wouldn't you think? I don't know. That's why I feel like this is some sort of misdirection here. But um, when you're talking about reincarnation, not only does the snake represent reincarnation with this iteration of the Ouroboros, the child and the skull, the eagle, oddly enough, can represent reincarnation. I don't know if they say that the snake turns into the eagle or what, but you see a lot of snake and eagle symbolism throughout different empires, throughout history, really. 
And it seems like they're always kind of going at war. And in the Mexico flag, it's obviously represented on the same flag. And Mexico has some very interesting developments going on with the uh, whole Russia and Ukraine thing. There's some some interesting sides being lined out over there. It's a different episode for another day. But um, this, this Ouroboros that I'm referencing here depicts the whole world being surrounded and controlled by the serpent, right? Life and death, the beginning and the end, is inside of an Ouroboros. And this is the way that the Satanist views the entire created world. The Bible states that Satan is the Lord of this world. And that's that's really a common theme throughout other religions. They say that, you know, the the uh, evil kind of rule over the earth. Think in the Bible, it's actually John uh, 5.19. And it's referred to in other books like Corinthians and um, makes reference to the ruler of this world or age. And there's a ton of different meanings of the snake. And it all adds up to the snake meaning immortality. So to me... This is kind of the idea of selling your soul and living forever, and that's kind of the end game for these Masons, right? They want the devil to win souls. They want to take souls away from the good and give them to the bad. This is, of course, the theory of this packet and uh, kind of some some dots that I'm connecting myself, but uh, something something very, very interesting there about that, how the snake, the symbol of evil, represents eternity or eternal life, right? You can live forever. The Illuminati and like in music, they talk about living forever. Um, in a lot of hip-hop songs, actually, they, they reference living forever. And we know that a lot of these individuals, uh, whether they know it or not, they're paying homage and they're worshiping Baphomet, which is, again, the go to Mendes, a satanic symbol, not a Luciferian symbol, a satanic symbol. And um, yeah, just it's right there in your face. But yeah, they say that uh, Satan is the lord of this world, the prince of the power of the air, and is clearly in control of this wicked world until Jesus Christ returns. This is what the packet says. Again, I have to, I always want to say that just when I sound like I'm getting preachy, I'm not intending to. I'm literally reading a lot of words off this, uh, off this page here. And as Pike is explaining in this uh, little quote that I'm going to give you here, the Mason's spiritual belief about the serpent is kind of zodiac in nature, and then he references bees and honey here too. So he says in, uh, I believe this is in Morals and Dogma again, uh, but we'll see here. The virgin of the zodiac is bitten in the heels by serpents, who with the Scorpio raises immediately behind her. And as honey, the emblem of purity and salvation was thought to be an antidote to the serpent's bite, so the bees... The emblems of nature's abundance are destroyed through the agency of the serpent and regeneration with the entrails of the vernal bull, okay? I don't know if that makes sense to you, but what it basically means is that uh, the Virgin Mary was bitten by the snake. They thought that honey would be the cure to this because honey is, again, a pagan um, emblem of purity and salvation, which, you know, it, it... According to the Bible, it should be Jesus and, and, you know, sometimes white wool and things like that. But there is no animal or no thing from nature that is pure, right? It's all it's all just kind of there for us, I guess. Um, I'm not going to lie and act like I understand it fully. But um, the emblem of nature's abundance was destroyed through the agency of the serpent. So the purity of the bee and the purity of the honey was destroyed by the serpent's bite 
and regeneration within the entrails of the vernal bull, and the sun god is finally victorious. The sun god being Tammuz, being some reference to more pagan worship. And, um, you know, reading the entrails of a bull or other sacrificed animals is an ancient practice, right? This is a witch thing. It's called hepatoscopy or horospicy, okay? Uh, and then sometimes augury, but um, augury is more the, um, uh, I'm sorry, augury is more the, like, studying of how animals move and what that would bring as an omen. Like, if birds are flying south, that's an omen for cold, right? Uh, the winter's coming and so on. Now, the uh, hepatoscopy and the horospicy is more reading entrails of a bull, you know, fucking cutting it into pieces and then reading what the organs say or taking the organs in a bowl and, and you know, looking at those and, and the witch will tell you some predictions. Uh, I'm sure that, that that's got a wide variety of accuracies upon it, but there are also human entrail readings. And the human entrail readings, I assume that they do when folks are dead or maybe if they were sacrificed in, in ancient times, they would look through this person's um, organs the same way that they would with the bowl um, and, and yeah, it's dark shit to me. It seems very, very weird. There was a, um, art festival, I believe in France where they were doing this. They were taking like, uh, animals. I don't think that they took any humans. Uh, who knows though? And they were reading the entrails and they were, you know, predicting things at this art show. And then they were doing mock human sacrifices and things like that. Weird shit. I mean, it seems like very, very dark art type stuff. Um, those go by other names when you're talking about humans. This is Anthropomancy and Manthea, okay? And it's a witch thing, like I said. It's referenced even in some kid movies, some Disney movies. Weird, weird shit. I don't know, man. They uh, they seem to not have any limits with the weird stuff that they'll do. I understand that there's probably some historical merit to reading organs and entrails for some prophecy. I just don't see it. it you know, without... If you were to take a... A random child, I feel like, um, I guess all kinds of indoctrination is different, but I mean, you would think that looking at organs and blood would not be a predictor of anything. You'd think that it would just be straight nature shit. It doesn't, I don't know, it, it's weird to me, but um, then again, maybe I was uh, raised in a different system and it doesn't make sense. Now, I was mentioning bees there a little bit, right? Pike mentions the bees and the honey, how that's supposed to be purity. And you constantly see the symbolism of bees and their beehive throughout Freemasonry. Again, this is that reference of man worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Again, to Christians, a big, big no-no. Again, who am I to say? I don't fucking know, and neither do you, right? So it's, it's one of those things, but... Try to notice how many times you hear references to bees and how many times you get references to honey. I mean, honey is a term of endearment. Um, I think that this stuff is kind of implanted in our culture intentionally. And it's uh, it's very interesting, man. I, I like the symbolism stuff. When we get into the pomegranate and what that means, um, I think you'll find that very interesting too because, you know, it's, it's something so simple as a fruit and you wouldn't think that it would go as deep and there wouldn't be as many occult meanings to something as simple as a pomegranate. But yeah, we'll roll into the uh, that Boaz and Yahin symbolism with the columns and, and uh, 
We're going to talk more about columns later, but uh, this is still sticking with the snake and how it's represented in the two Masonic columns. You have two snakes at the top, and one's a New World Order symbol, and one I think is more of the current state, especially the older state when like Pike was alive and they were trying to form this New World Order. Seems like we're at the New World Order's doorstep right now. I think that they'd be very pleased with the way that things are going as of now. But anyway, um, serpents encircling rings and globes and issuing from globes are common in the Persian, Egyptian, Chinese, and Indian monuments. We see this represented really, really well here within some Freemason symbolism with the winged globe, um, which is, you know, literally just a globe with wings, and then you have a serpent behind them, and that's to become the symbol of the New World Order when it overtly rules the world. It, I believe, referring to the snake here, and that is referring to the symbol of the final kingdom of the Antichrist, the Antichrist New World Order, okay? This is supposedly right before Jesus is going to come back or the Christ is going to come back, and uh, it's a it's a an interesting thought, right, to think that the New World Order symbol is something as cut and dry as a, uh, you know, a basic thing here with just a globe with wings and a snake wrapped around it versus a snake coiled up, again, representing wisdom. But, um, you know, the Ouroboros is kind of like symbolized here in a very, very unique way, not something that you would directly see because there is not a snake eating its tail. It's just wrapped around the earth. In the normal traditional Ouroboros, you could possibly think that the circle represents the earth, right? Again, it represents time, represents eternity. I would say that the earth also represents that for the pagan. There was no time before human was around for most pagans, right? As far as I know, when they worshiped the earth, the earth is everything. I think that they even believed that like the gods lived here on this earth. So just a very, very good representation and a sneaky way to represent the Ouroboros with the winged globe. And the Ouroboros is on the Masonic apron as well, at least according to this. I've never seen an actual Masonic apron, but I'll describe the one that they have here. Uh, you can see that the all-seeing eye is on the uh, left upper corner. And the sun worship symbol or the point of with a, a thousand points of light is at the upper right hand corner and a beehive with bees toward the bottom of the apron is on there as well. All very typical Masonic and satanic symbols, but the centerpiece symbol with the satanic death's head in the middle of the Masonic emblem of the compass and square. This is the skull and bones, which is dead center in this thing. And this symbol is surrounded by an Ouroboros, the snake eating its own tail. There's two sprigs of evergreen below the um, square and compass, but you, it's also inside the Ouroboros. Evergreen depicting eternal life. Eternity is very, very well represented in the center of this thing here. Why that's so important is, uh, is interesting. You'll come to find that out later. Again, um, I kind of alluded to it earlier, the compass kind of represents male energy and the square represents female energy. You have the skull and crossbones in the center there. That represents death, right? That represents kind of darkness. It represents evil in a sense. So you have a male and a female 
having intercourse, they're interlocked here with this image of the skull and the, or the um, the square and the compass. You have something evil coming out of that with the serpent surrounding it. And then Manly P. Hall goes on to say the serpent is the symbol and prototype of a universal savior who redeems the worlds by giving creation the knowledge of itself and the realization of good and evil. So what is that? You know, you have some universal savior, which is the serpent, protecting men and women giving birth to a skull and crossbones. That's a gross oversimplification of it. But what do you think that means? That doesn't sound like anything good. Kind of interesting, though. Again, I love the symbolism. This is stuff that's that's truly interesting to me now. And uh, we haven't even gotten to the damn pomegranate yet. The pomegranate was like the most mind-blowing thing to me. It's actually inspired me to uh, do an episode on like the uh, the symbolism of fruit, which sounds, and it's, it's fitting because it's Pride Month. So we'll probably do that towards the end of the month here just to pay tribute to Pride Month. But yeah, there is some insane symbolism within fruit there. Albert Pike uh, also goes on here to say, it's because the body of the Holy Spirit, the universal agent, the serpent devouring its own tail gives some protection to people here. So that's in Morals and Dogma. And uh, yeah, you just uh, you see a lot of these guys really saluting the serpent and and really putting some importance to the Ouroboros specifically. Time and eternity represented by a snake eating its own tail. Crazy stuff. And that really does it for part four. And rolling into part five, it's uh, starting out saying Freemasonry proven to worship Satan. Its symbols venerate the sex act. Study of symbols. Part five of five. I hope you're ready for this. This is my favorite fucking section here, to be honest. Um, again, this packet was very, very well done. Just the, the I mean, it's written like a book. It's written like, uh, like a 30-page book, but I think that all this stuff is crammed into just 27 pages think of the the number there what you will but um i don't know is this more misinformation possibly but this is all stuff that i had not heard before and i think that um as claudie says at the beginning there you know this is probably at least the second level of messaging within freemasons right I don't know if it's the end-all be-all. I don't know uh, if this guy is secretly a Mason putting out fake information because, again, I don't have the author's name. I'd love to get it. Um, I feel like he wanted to be anonymous for a reason. What that reason is, I do not know, and I don't really care to know. I just, um, I like when this stuff comes out, man. Same thing with that snake venom theory. When that snake venom theory came out, I learned a ton about water, right? We shared a lot of that information on the show here. Whether it's real or not, I don't think matters as much as what you can gain out of it, right? It's like the whole idea of like when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. I don't know. I think that uh, there's a ton, a ton of things that we can learn from all of this stuff. And there clearly is some legitimate symbolism within this packet. So moving into like the whole uh, main component of what the Freemasons and the pagans seem to represent other than Lucifer is sex and the generative property of humans. When a male and female get together, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I know that it's offensive to 2% of my listeners, literally, uh, maybe four, actually. I forget if there's four or 2% that are non-binary. I mean, you guys, even the pagans, 
worship the sex acts of a man and a woman, right? I don't know what that means of their opinions on homosexuality, and that was something that is very, very um, oxymoronic, I guess, right? It's something that doesn't make sense because there is a push in this age of Aquarius that we seem to not care about gender, even the goat, Baphomet, the the goat of Mendes, um, this weird creature. It's a man and a goat, a chimeric hermaphrodite, right? It's got a dick and titties. Um, I would say it's a male, though, because it doesn't have a puss. So I'm just thinking out loud here. Let's roll into this fifth and final part, which is the longest part here. And uh, you're going to get a lot of... Uh, of the deeper meanings of what they talk about here. We're going to talk about the compass. Um, we're going to talk about the phallic symbolism, the yin-yang, as I mentioned, um, quite a few of the bigger things here. And we'll finish off with the torch and the Statue of Liberty, which I think is a great segment, and then sex at the uh, end of the Masonic rainbow and some wild, wild symbolism with the cross and crown, which... Um, just looking at the symbol, and I'll post all these, especially on Patreon. Um, looking at the cross and crown, you can see exactly once you once you recognize the the phallic symbolism and then the 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 vaginal symbolism. I don't know exactly what that's called. I don't know the uh, you know esoteric term for something like that. Um, you can absolutely tell that this is a blasphemic symbol of some sort. Because, you know, it's a, it's a cross that forms a, a phallic symbol entering a vaginal symbol, which is represented by the circle of the crown. And I'll explain here because it, it is, again, on, uh, on repeat here within their symbolism. So let's go into this here. Um, the Book of Romans gives us the perfect definition for the word pagan. Just to start this out, a pagan is someone who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator. It's a theme that I've touched on here a couple of times. And um, says that the creator is blessed forever. Um, and then it says, amen. This is Romans one twenty-five, And I'll just take that again, just so that you can kind of hear exactly the whole thing throughout uh, its entirety. Uh, a pagan is someone who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Uh, yeah, it's a little confusing. It may seem like uh, the, the creature is blessed forever, but the creator is blessed forever, according to this Romans 125. And uh, pagans have worshipped animals, insects, birds, rivers, forests, trees, and many other things throughout time. And they worship the sex act between a man, a man, and a woman, okay? They worship the sex act between a man and a woman more than anything, and they worship both the man's penis and the woman's vulva at the highest levels here. Even in pagan's eyes, like I said, homosexuality is an abomination, you would think. You would think. Now, I don't understand if there's some deeper meaning here. Again, peel back a meaning, you'll find another and another and another. Who shall know how many teachings there are, right? Now, Pagans and Masons represent sex organs in unique ways. And you see this 
throughout architecture, throughout their symbolism in which they communicate through. But Freemasons hide much of the sexual content in many of their symbols as opposed to the Satanists. The Satanists are much more out there with their symbolism and their homage and honor of sex. It's um, it's a night and day difference, kind of like how the witches and the pagans have the pentagram right side up and the Satanists have theirs upside down. They copy a lot of things from each other and they invert things. And they also do equal but opposite practices. This is the whole point. And this is why it's such a fucking mystery, man. It's one of those things where you can get as educated as you want to about a topic, but someone that just comes in and studies it for the first day may be able to tell you something that you hadn't thought of. It's one of those things that I think is just really cool. It's not like algebra or mathematics at all where there's a right and wrong answer. It's more like art. It's it's this esoteric symbolism that there's no right and wrong answer Um, There may be the way that the elites see it and the higher level people see it, but there's got to be some meaning. I think that if you can if you can throw a meaning into a pomegranate that that tells you something that you hadn't heard before and it actually fucking makes sense. Well, maybe that makes more sense than the ones that you're hearing here. Right. Um, It's a rabbit hole. If there ever was one, this is an absolute rabbit hole. And this next part shouts out my boy Claudie. I've, I've mentioned his name several times. Carl Claudie was quoted in the previous episode saying that masonry has layers upon layers of meanings. And for the very same symbol, you'll get multiple meanings here. And you have to just keep digging until you get all of these meanings. Sexual connotations have been assigned to many of these symbols most commonly used in the fraternity and for which other meanings which are completely non-sexual have been taught to the lower level masons okay so to kind of summarize what he says there um basically every symbol has a sexual connotation so all the symbolism that i told you that's one level of meaning now we're going to get into the real shit at least according to this packet every symbol within the freemasons has some sexual overtones to it not even undertones the undertones were the things that i was talking about the whole time so now you probably feel like a real asshole for listening to that first episode right but honestly i think that all of these things have different meanings <laughs> i think that they they have multiple meanings for a reason and if you're learning the way of these people yeah you know those meanings too right you know those meanings that don't really make as much sense or or I'm, i should say they don't they don't have as much authority Versus the meanings of the sexual representation of the uh, phallus and the vulva here. So let's get into the sexual connotations um, to Masonic symbols with the sex in the G. This is a this was a really cool one to look into here because, like I said, I was always kind of under the impression that the G in the Freemasonry symbol, the square and compass, represented either God or sacred geometry. Right? G geometry, God. All that good shit. And they use, in in, uh, mason work, they use um, geometry in order to get their structures built, right? And then they're also doing this under God, and you think that uh, this would be uh, a positive thing because God is mentioned. There's also some images later on that show the Bible, but it's a very, very sneaky way that they're dissing the Bible here. It's it's very well done. It's it's crazy to look at. So um, 
The initiate of Freemasonry is told that this letter in the symbol represents God or geometry, like I always thought. And this is the supreme architect of the universe used to design the universe. A little confusing there, but that's exactly what it says. The supreme architect of the universe used to design the universe. It says here, however, Arthur Waite, W-A-I-T-E, he was an occultic uh, 33rd degree Mason, and he quotes Eliphas Levi, who is also a 33rd degree Mason. They left that out until now. They tell us that the uh, letter G stands for Venus. Venus is another representation for Lucifer, right? This is the morning star, the eastern star, which again, if you forgot, is the women's division of the Freemasons. The G is the symbol for a lingam, which is a stylized phallus. Albert Pike has something very interesting to say about the symbol here in Morals and Dogma. And he says the monad is the male and the duad is the female. The moad, uh, I'm sorry, the monad is the compass, right? And the duad is the square. Their sexual union represents the triad, which is the G. This is represented by the G or the generative principle. The generative principle is code for sex act, okay? So it's kind of a, a wild little thing here to think about. And when you uh, go to the sex act within a point section, which I'm skipping ahead just a bit, but I will go back. The sex act within the circle states here that uh, the monad is basically represented by a dot with a circle outside of it. How would you make that symbol super symmetrically and super easily You'd make it with a compass, right? The compass, of course, has like a pencil on one side and a fucking point on the other. You set the point down, you draw a perfect symbol. That, my friend, is a monad. And the point with the circle carries a sexual connotation to it. The symbol is used in sun worship and then says the female principle symbolized by the moon assumed the form of a lunette or small circular opening or a crescent while the male principle symbolized by the sun assumed the form of the lingam or the phallus and placed himself erect in the center of the lunette like the mast of a ship. Uh, This is from Point Within a Circle, Short Talk Bulletin. This was on August 1931 at a Masonic Bulletin designed to read within the lodges, I guess. So this is some deep shit here. And what is the sex within a circle here? Um, Satanists love to use the uh, eight-step path of enlightenment, and they believe that a person needs to go through eight separate steps to become fully enlightened spiritually. So they take the monad, and they draw essentially eight lines in it, if you want to picture like a bicycle wheel with eight spokes, and they add like a hub to it, so there's a smaller circle within a larger circle, and then eight spokes, four of which meet in the center, And then four of the um, others are on the uh, outside of this inner circle here. You basically have like a a crosshairs meeting in the center and then a uh, crosshairs at a 45 degree angle, which does not meet in the center, if that makes any sense. Again, looking like a bicycle wheel. And eight, that's an interesting number, right? Eight's the symbol of wealth and infinity, tying back to that Ouroboros, right? Eternity, infinity, or it could also mean abundance and the square which is where this uh, the square symbol comes in of the square and compass, the square would make these straight lines 
or these uh, you know 90 degree angles here. And uh, so that's represented really nicely in this nice little sex within a circle symbol. So interesting stuff. Again, very deep, deep shit. And that would bring us to sex act in columns, how this is represented both in broken and unbroken columns. The broken column is utilized in the Eastern Star and Freemasonry, both. It has levels of meanings here. The initiate is told initially that the broken column signifies an early death. But there's the most significant meaning of columns here, whether they are broken or they are intact fully. And that's this. Um, We read here from uh, Edmund Royan, the broken column. He says, in Egyptian mythology, Isis is sometimes pictured weeping over the broken column, which conceals the body of her husband, Osiris, while behind her stands Horus, or time, pouring ambrosia over her hair. Okay, ambrosia is uh, the, the fountain of youth, essentially, right? Pouring ambrosia over her hair, and Isis was both a virgin and mother, so the beautiful virgin is Isis weeping, The broken column is the missing member of Osiris, and that's, of course, his phallus, right? Horus is another name for Satan, though, and Isis is the consort of Lucifer. So basically, Isis just lost her husband Osiris, and that's the reason why she's weeping. We have to remember that Osiris' body was dismembered, including his penis. That was the part that was never found. He was cut up by Typhon or Set, right? And I, I... I always heard that it was 14 pieces he was cut into and they couldn't find that 14th piece. Um, but I've also seen recently uh, some references or some sites uh, saying that 26 pieces was the accurate number. Hard to say. I've always heard 14, but that may be more misdirection. And uh, you'll probably, what I hate is you'll probably get some people that are concrete on how many people or how many um, you know pieces this dude was cut into we don't fucking know the truth. Every every part of history is a lie and so much of philosophy is a lie. That's why I make it a point here to say 14 or 26. Who knows? Now, I'm not going to get into any debate about this. I just think that it's interesting to think that we've heard 14 for so long and for some reason I'm seeing a lot of 26 pieces here. So that would mean they found 25 and that 26th was missing. And Isis and Osiris were both written about by Albert Pike, of course, saying that they were the active and passive principles of the universe, commonly symbolized by the generative parts of man and woman. This is, again, in morals and dogma. Really, you see this as the most significant um, piece of text when it comes to Freemasonry. And and maybe that's more misdirection, but man, I, he is... Uh, Truly pretty incredible with the the amount of information and the the amount that it's cited in this packet. And I'm going to go on just to read a quick little snippet out of this um, regarding the entire idea of the column, because, of course, this is what started this part, right? We've got to follow along here. The broken column being told at first to represent death, an early death. Um, But, however, we find that's just not to be the case. It represents... Uh, some some deeper things here. The packet says here, you must focus on the bottom of the broken column, not the top. Do not focus on the, the broken part, right? Focus on the base of the column. The bottom of the column shows the phallic upright column inserted into the circular base, which is the symbol of the female vulva. 
The column is broken, of course, to symbolize the belief that Osiris's penis had been cut into many sections. Interesting, right? When you look at a broken column and you think that it represents an early death, well, that's not the case at all. It just represents Osiris's cock. That's all that's important here. It's crazy. And it's interesting that we would focus on the top of that, right, rather than the bottom with the true meaning. And this kind of uh, alludes to the idea that we've kind of always pounded home here at this show. What's up is down. Everything's basically a distraction. You look at something broken and that becomes the main part of the story. This beautiful column is broken. It's not whole, but that doesn't matter. What's important is the bottom, the, the, the phallus entering the vulva, the pole entering into a circle. It's insane. Maybe that's where the box terminology came from because, uh, you know, the, the square inside the circle is also a loose representation of a column from the top, which, you know, we saw that a little bit in the uh, Divinity of Man triangle. And uh, the sacred geometry is, is very, very deep within this stuff, but it's not really alluded to uh, much here in this packet. But just, again, when you look into it, and, and this is scratching the surface, literally, it's very well done. It's, it's incredible, the levels to this shit here. And I should uh, finish off this uh, column talk with, uh, you know, the idea that the broken column is, is a representation of the phallus, specifically Osiris's phallus, but the full column is still a phallic symbol, and that's just the masculine energy, the male energy there. And then we'll move on to some other uh, very, you know, iconic and deep-rooted phallic symbolism in the obelisk, Right. And what's a more iconic obelisk in modern times than the Washington Monument there in Washington, D.C.? This is an, an insane little connection here, and I, I didn't know that it was a shrine as much as it was. And keep in mind, you have the obelisk, um, you know, kind of in the middle of a circle. So you have a stick of sorts in the middle of a circle, which, you know, that's the cooch. So we have... Um, this this iconic monument here. And it's believed that the spirit of the Egyptian sun god Ra resides within the obelisk of the Washington Monument. And they pray to it three times daily. Who is they? Well, I would say that it's probably the Masons there in Washington, D.C. They do have uh, a massive, massive lodge there. Um, if possible, they, they will face to the east. So they'll pray to the, uh, the monument uh, ideally facing towards the east. So I'm assuming here what that means is they would get to the west of it and they would uh, make sure that the monument is facing uh, east of where they are and they would have to position themselves to face from west to east while catching the monument in their uh, in their line of vision. But it could also just mean that simply they'll face the east and they'll pray to the monument. doesn't matter if the location of themselves is necessarily to the west of this monument, just uh, something that I thought would would make sense, kind of like a mecca of sorts, right? Like the uh, the the black cube that the Islamists pray towards. But this is where you start to see Freemasonry potentially taking a little bit from Islam, right? Um, there's a lot of things that they take from Christianity. There's some things that they take from Judaism. Here is the first part that I had noticed where they actually maybe are, you know, borrowing something from Islam, where they're, they're 
keen on where this thing is at all points in in uh, you know throughout their day, and then they need to pray to it three times a day. So that is um, a very weird thing to think about. That potentially some of the high rollers in society and all these people in D.C. take time out of the day to to uh, you know pay some homage to this little monument here. And I did find it pretty interesting too that many Masons who had passed away they use a obelisk as a headstone or they'll at least have an obelisk portrayed on their headstone. So it's definitely one of the more iconic phallic symbols and and probably the very best known. Again, that was used in Egypt a ton. um, And it's taking the ancient architecture, the ancient mysteries and bringing it into the modern world. And speaking of uh, ancient architecture here, we have the pyramid or the triangle, right? And the triangle, like I mentioned in the last episode, does make the hexagram when you take the masculine triangle and the feminine triangle. And R.H. McKenzie here says that among Egyptians, the base of the triangle represented Osiris or the male principle and the perpendicular axis, the sides of the pyramid, represented Isis or the female principle and the hypotenuse or the top in this case represents their son. Okay. This is why the uh, Eye of Horus is at the top of the triangle. So you have Osiris at the base, Isis on the sides, and Horus at the top. This is the Holy Trinity in Egypt, not the Holy Trinity in Masonry, unless they are just taking this from this. I feel like Harama Biff would take the place of Horus in this case. And then, um, you know, they have Satan and Lucifer um, that was just my thought. I don't know. Uh, I have no proof of that. That's just kind of where I sit on that whole idea. I like to think of the Trinity. It's a nice, uh, you know, not even number, but it's a basic number repeated constantly in our society. And uh, you, you do see a Holy Trinity here with Horus, Isis, and Osiris. And I just thought that was a really cool connection that was made here. Um, again, R.H. McKenzie claiming that this is well-known knowledge within the ancient schools, right? The mystery schools. And like I said, the two triangles make up the hexagram. And right when you thought that there was too many sex symbols, guess what? The hexagram does represent sexual intercourse as well. According to Albert Mackey and probably many others, he tells us that the sexual connotation of the hexagram is the triangle pointing down representing the female symbol corresponding with the yani and the upward pointing triangle representing the male or the lingam. And when those two meet and when those two triangles are interlaced, it represents the union of the active and passive forces in nature, just like what Pike was talking about with Osiris and Isis, male and female elements here. So to the Mason, the interlocking or interlacing triangles of the hexagram depict sexual intercourse. And this is pure Satanism, according to a Christian perspective. Very interesting. And uh, you'll see, you know, I, I know that I'm seeming to pit Christianity against Freemasonry here. And I'll give the big reveal here in just a bit of why I feel so many Christians feel like they are under attack from Freemasonry. And it's written down. I mean, it's, it's, it's again... The Masons communicate through symbols. They don't come out and say that they want to take out Christianity. They communicate through symbols, and they have a very, very unique symbol here with some key elements to it that actually show, I believe, and and I probably believe it because this packet really kind of alludes to it, 
that, uh, you know, that is the main goal of Freemasonry is to eradicate Christianity. But we'll get into that here in just a bit. Going to keep moving through some symbols here. Uh, the yin yang is one that's represented very well in masonry, and it dates back to uh, old China, right? I mean, this is a, a classic symbol. The yin represents eternity, darkness, and the feminine or the left side of the body. And then you get the yang, which is its opposite, representing history, light masculinity, the right side of the body, and all that good stuff. Now, it's interesting that they do make the connection here with the left and the darkness, right? Because the left-hand path is historically something that you get represented there. And the, by contrast, the right would mean um, something more pure. But uh, you see that in politics, too. I don't know if that's intentionally done. I think that a lot of these things are... You get progressivism, the Democratic side represented by the left, and then the conservative side, uh, which does tend to have more family morals. Um, they Not to say that Democrats don't believe in the family unit or whatever, but as a whole, conservatives and the right hand of the political aisle will side more with uh, the, the um, religious rights and things like that. So, again, um, one thing that is really important to remember when you're looking at the yin-yang, um, that black side would be, even though it is on the right, they go oftentimes in Eastern culture from right to left when they read. So the yin is that dark side, and the yang is that light side. Again, feminism represented by the darkness and masculinity represented by the light. Very um, kind of a mind-blowing thing to look at, into there. And just how it's portrayed in culture today and the push for it, I think, has something to say. Um, the symbol itself dates back to at least the 4th century BC, and it's been identified with the Eastern philosophical religions of Confucianism, Buddhism, and Taoism. And in the Western world, it's long been adopted into the symbolism of myth, magic, astrology, and, of course, witchcraft. This is according to Claire Chambers. And a good quote here from Gary Jennings writes Black Magic, White Magic, and the Dial Press. He says, another ancient magical sign called the Yin and Yang first appeared sometime before the 3rd century BC. So he's kind of contradicting what it says up here. But that's why we say at least the 4th. But the 3rd century BC in China. This emblem became the favorite of sorcerers and mystics throughout the Orient. That's a racist term now. Because it, too, embodies so many possible meanings. You find that repeated, right? You find that the more that something can adopt various meanings, the more confusion can be added. And as Carl Claudi says, my favorite dude to reference here, is that the more you look into something, the more meaning behind it, thus the more power behind that symbol. And it's true meaning, right? If something's convoluted, and uh, really confusing when you look into it and you see so many different meanings. Well, it's kind of nice to uh, find out that true meaning and cut out all the bullshit. And it gives that truth extra power, right? So the yin-yang is um, also represented in the checkered floors in the Masonic lodges. Again, the darkness and the light. It represents, according to this here, the war between the Archangel Michael and Satan. So more biblical symbolism here. Um, again, you know, Masonry claims to be very Christian um, at its roots. 
Um, I, I hadn't heard that personally. Um, again, I, I wasn't an expert in masonry and by no, no means am I now. We're learning as we go here. You know what I mean? This is one of those things where, you know, the information's out there and you can look for it. And um, apparently they they confuse quite a few of their younger members and the, the new initiates, making them think that they are following the light of God when it turns out around rank 19 or so or degree 19, as they call it. You, uh, you end up finding out that you're worshiping Lucifer the whole time. Lucifer, of course, being the real God, not to be confused with Satan, who's opposite and equal, right? And with the checkerboard floor and the yin-yang, not only is the black and white used to represent opposites, but the triangles are as well when they are interlocked, forming that, store, that uh, star of Solomon, the store. I'm talking like I'm from fucking Jersey or something, that store. Um, the star of Solomon is, uh, is the Masonic version of the yin yang. You have an upward triangle and a downward triangle, that downward pointing triangle representing the yoni, the feminine, um, the darkness. And then of course the, uh, upward pointing triangle representing masculinity, light, and all that good stuff. So it's not only an OG sorcerer symbol here. Um, but it pays serious homage to some magic and also adds layers to original meanings, right? That's the name of the game here. Layers add to confusion. The yin and yang symbol is also used to represent bisexuality and homosexuality within today's new age movement. It's used quite often, actually, and especially in the 90s. It was used a lot within those movements. I was a kid in the 90s, but I do remember seeing a lot of those tattoos. And it was kind of one of those things where if like, one of your buddies had one in high school. You would just kind of give them shit about being gay. Uh, even though everyone acted super gay in high school where I went, it was like a big frat type thing that that everyone kind of participated in. Um, that's different, though. You know what I mean? We're joking around. We're boys. Okay? It's a joke. But, um, yeah, masonry is identical to the ancient mysteries, as we know. And this is why they use these symbols and they pump them out there. It's a confusing bit, right? It's a confusing thing. It's the magician's trick of sleight of hand. Look this way. Don't look at this. Look at my hands and watch what I'm doing. Meanwhile, I'm pulling a rabbit out of your ass. It's um oldest trick in the book, so to speak. So uh, finally, I do want to note here when it comes to what at least this book says, uh, or this pamphlet rather says, is the most evil symbol. And it's a portrayal of the compass after, you know, we've spent the better part of these two episodes talking about the hexagram, um, we've touched on the sun quite a bit, right, with uh, some reference to Tammuz and to Ra. Well, finishing up with that yin-yang symbolism and how that ties in with the duality of the checkerboard floor, next up is this most evil symbol, according to the packet, tying in the square and compass with some true blasphemous shit here, as well as the Statue of Liberty, the gaffle, the rainbow, and some uh, cross and crown symbolism. Head over to patreon.com slash dangerous world podcast. Get the rest of this episode and many others, guys. Thanks for your support.